0: What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on?
1: What the <laughs> hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about.
0: You don't have to know what the hell is on it.
1: What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? <laughs>
0: Podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute.
2: If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share.
0: Thanks for listening. Here's our show.
2: Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome To our podcast, what the hell is going on, Mark? What the hell is going on?
0: We're talking about the future of the American right. Matt Continenti, our colleague here at the American Enterprise Institute, has a fantastic new book out called "The Right: The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism." It's appropriate timing because there's a big battle of what we used to call the conservative movement. He actually had a really great piece in the Wall Street Journal based on the book where he talks about what he calls retro Republicanism. The Republican Party is moving back to the conservative movement, back to the Republicanism of the the Coolidge and Harding era, reverting to a pre-World War II identity of lower taxes, economic protection, restricted immigration, wariness of foreign intervention and religious piety. What do you think?
2: I don't know. It's an awesome book and a truly scholarly dive into the conservative movement and the history of it. You know, my dad used to say there's nothing new under the sun and that sort of struck me forcibly in the book is that no, these aren't these aren't new bad ideas, these are old bad ideas that have that have merely found some fresh oxygen. No, I'm not a big fan of the Republican Party of the 1930s or the conservative movement of the 1930s. These are the Neutrality acts. These were the restrictions on immigration. These were anti-immigration. These were pretty racist. I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not S- talking S- about the 1930s. I'm talking yucky. about today. Yeah, not all of them are bad. No, that's nothing absolutely true. nothing wrong with low and, taxes but, but or nothing wrong with religious
0: piety. There's nothing wrong with being a reluctant internationalist which is what I think we are the American right, people are
2: right people but it shouldn't are. go along with well, you know, all of the interesting other yucky, yucky things but you know, I,
0: I, I, I think some of these things are different so for example protectionism in our lifetimes we have the Republican party has been the party of free trade and free enterprise right and I think we've all done a, something of a reassessment of that in the wake of COVID, in the wake of discovering that maybe it's not a great idea to have just have pure globalization and where we, all our supply chains become enmeshed in China and we become dependent on the Chinese Communist Party for critical minerals and critical supplies. We've found that Europe made a big mistake by making itself dependent on Russia for energy. So there's a, there's a reassessment of whether or not pure... Free a free trade is necessarily a good thing. Maybe we should scale it back a little bit and have some uh, have a more strategic approach to trade. Similarly with immigration. I don't think you know back then uh, Coolidge and, and uh, Harding they were they supported having no more immigration for forty years. Right? We're, we're talking about we're looking at the border today. And we're talking about illegal immigration. You can, be, you can be against illegal immigration and for opening more legal immigration, but our border has become an absolute disaster. We had 2 million encounters at the border last year. That is an all-time record. If we get rid of Title 42, it's going to be a completely open border. There's nothing wrong with addressing those issues.
2: So I agree with you, Mark, wholeheartedly, and everybody who listens to this podcast knows that we agree that rule of law is hugely important. Yes, we should be for more legal immigration, and we should be very much against illegal immigration. The problem is that a lot of the people who are on this side with us are, in fact, just against immigration or are against immigration by certain people. I think in the activist, the the, the very vocal
0: activist sort of uh, far right, that's true. But I think most Americans are super concerned about the border, and want people to be able to come here. I mean, there's strong support for allowing Ukrainians to come over here. There's strong public support, the polls show, for allowing Afghans to come over here.
2: Poor Ukrainians who now have to sneak over the border because the Biden administration isn't able to keep their commitment. So, look, I think we're, 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 we're disagreeing about nothing here at the end of the day, because you're right, this is actually an important point to make. There's a huge difference between what the people think and what their self-appointed spokesmen utter. And I think that that is really something that comes out, and it comes out in our discussion with Matt, which we're going to share with you in just a second, but that is that there's a very, very vocal, self-appointed group of flag carriers for conservatism who suggest that all immigration is bad, who makes snidely, you know, vaguely racist, vaguely anti-Semitic remarks, but that the people who actually believe in these policies should not be tarred with those same feathers. They don't believe those things. They don't hate Jews. They don't hate Hispanics. They don't hate brown people. They don't like critical race theory, right? And they don't like illegal immigration, but they're not actually isolationists. And we really see that in response to Ukraine. It's the same thing with
0: foreign policy, right? So there's a neo-isolationist movement on the right. I think that they're a very tiny faction of the right, and they've been highly discredited in the last few years by what, what we've seen by and with the, by being, the, the by, being by being wrong the in the Afghan withdrawal, by being wrong in Ukraine and the American people, Americans are not isolationists, even the most conservative Americans are not isolationists. They're reluctant internationalists. They don't want to go, they don't want to send their sons to die in foreign wars, losing foreign wars and two uh, for something that's not in the American interest, but they're also, they want to provide weapons to the Ukrainians. They were disgusted by the withdrawal and the abandonment of our allies in Afghanistan. I think you know, my old boss, Don Rumsfeld, who I like to quote here, always to say, used to Every say, time. he had a phrase. Uh, he had a phrase. I learned a lot from him. Americans have a pretty good inner gyroscope, that most Americans have pretty good common sense, and uh, we need to find a way to isolate the fringes and promote a conservative internationalism, which I think is broadly popular in this country.
2: Fair enough, we do need to, and we don't do a great job of it. And funnily enough, we never have. And that really comes out in this book. That, I will tell you, you know, sitting down and listening to these ideas, pondering what it is to be a conservative, pondering the fight between the wings of of people who like to call themselves conservatives, is disconcerting, to say the least. And it left me, I think I'm a less happy warrior than you, it, it, left, it left me nervous and, and worried. But, hey, decide for yourselves. We've got Matt Continetti with us. He's a journalist. I'm sure all of you know who he is. He's an intellectual historian of the right. He's, of course, a fellow at the place you need to be when you are an intellectual historian, the American Enterprise Institute. He's the founding editor of the Washington Free Beacon. He's a columnist for Commentary Magazine. He's also just a terrific guy and a wonderful and thoughtful colleague.
0: Here's our interview. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, it's great to be all of us to be in the studio together, which in the post-COVID era is so
1: rare. It has been two years since I've been in this studio. Wow. It's wonderful to be back.
2: Well, they haven't cleaned it since you were no, here <laughs> last. I still see <laughs> I apologize. junk over there in the
0: corner. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the great thing is it's a great occasion for you to come back because you've got a new book out, uh, which we're all very excited about. And you had a great piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, the other day based on the book talking about sort of retro Republicanism. You said that today the GOP is reverting to its pre-World War II identity as the party of low taxes, economic protection, restricted immigration, and wariness of foreign intervention and religious piety. So what is retro Republicanism and what's the evidence that we're going there?
1: Well, um, one thing I wanted to accomplish with my book was kind of provide a prehistory of the American right. Most of the histories of the American right basically start at the end of World War II. They talk about William F. Buckley Jr. and the Foundation of National Review in 1955. All very important. All very important and all in my book. And then they kind of end with either the election of Ronald Reagan or sometimes the Republican takeover of Congress in 1994 or sometimes if they're elegiac, they end with Barack Obama's election in 2008. What I wanted to do was I wanted to begin much earlier and end much later. So my book covers 100 years. It begins in 1921 and it ends in 2021. And when I... Did that I found that the Republican Party of the 1920s resembles in many ways the Republican Party of the 2020s on some of the issues that you mentioned. And so when I tell the full story of the American right, what I found is that the Republican Party and conservative movement in which I came of age may have been something of an exception in some of its attitudes uh, toward the outside world in particular.
2: First of all, congratulations on the book, Matt, and thank you really for for joining us in our somewhat dusty studio. So tell us a little bit about the provenance of the book. Why did you you even want to write a hundred-year history about the conservative movement?
1: Well, I've always loved old magazines. It's a hobby of mine. And so in the 20 years I've been in Washington, I've gone through a lot of old magazines. And so having read the collected weekly standard and the collected national review, I guess I had to put that knowledge to some use, right? But the proximate cause was the 2012 election. After Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, I felt that a lot of Republicans and conservatives had been surprised by that result, and especially the swiftness with which the election was called for Barack Obama on election night 2012. And I was also struck by the divide between Republicans in Washington, D.C., and the grassroots conservatives throughout the nation, in particular in how they analyzed the reasons for Romney's defeat. And so that if you recall, that was the GOP autopsy report that came out in 2013, right? The reason Romney lost was he wasn't pro-amnesty for illegal immigration. He wasn't pro-same-sex marriage and more pro-choice. on He wasn't a Democrat. Basically, that is what the Republicans <laughs> in D.C. concluded, whereas... Among the grassroots conservatives, they thought the reason Romney lost was he didn't fight enough. He didn't challenge the media enough. He didn't challenge the institutions that had been in the views of many conservatives captured by the liberal ethos. So I wanted to explain how we got to that situation. And it took me 10 years to explain it because the further I got into the history of how that divide was visible in 2012... Well, I learned that, one, that divide has always been there on the American right, that there's always been a competition and occasional cooperation between conservatism and populism. And then, of course, as I was writing this book, Donald Trump became president. And so the issues that I first identified, even really when Sarah Palin appeared on the stage in 2008, about the the growth of populism in the GOP... Well, Donald Trump just exemplified and also accelerated that trend. So that's how I came to write the book. And and that's why the book covers such a long span of time, because I I felt to tell the story of how we got here, we needed to go back even before most of the histories begin.
0: The conservative movement has always been a populist movement. Hasn't it? I mean, if you think back, it, you know, William F. Buckley, who was probably the most elite person you could possibly be, skiing in Stodd, you know, I, I drove to drove in a limousine everywhere he went, a manor in Connecticut, uh, sailing, uh, all the rest of it. He famously said that I'd rather be governed by the first 500 names in the Boston Telephone Directory than the faculty of Harvard College. And the fact is, for, for many of the years uh, before Buckley came along, conservatism was considered this outlier movement of, you know, the people in the heartland, but civilized people in Washington and who may, policymakers wouldn't wouldn't dare consider, even Republicans. You know, John Lindsay was the epitome of, uh, of what a Republican was. William F. Buckley was not. So hasn't it always been a populist movement?
1: Well, yes and no. So one of the conclusions I found is that when you begin to the American right in the 1920s, you find that the right was popular, right? I mean, this is the presidencies of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge. But even while the Republican Party was very, very popular in the 1920s and benefited from landslide election victories, some of the intellectuals on the right, the libertarian intellectuals, people like Henry Louis Mencken or Albert J. Nock, they were kind of elitists and disdainful of the public. So you had this weird relationship where even though the Republican Party was enjoying incredible strength, historic strength in the 1920s, a lot of the intellectuals associated with with the right were kind of contemptuous of mass democracy and popular politics. Well, then the Great Depression happens, right? And the Republican Party is basically delegitimized. It's thrown out of power. It's basically a a rump in Congress and in the States. Conservatism is not popular at all. And on top of that, the right during the 1930s tends to have an isolationist foreign policy, does not want to become involved in the war in Europe in 1939. And so Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941 delegitimizes the foreign policy of the right. So you have this period coming out of the Cold War where the right, conservatism, they're basically on the fringes of American politics. Buckley starts this process of moving it toward the mainstream again, and he does it in a funny way. And as you suggest, Mark, he does it by making arguments which are really coming from an an intellectual position of, high abstraction, free market economics, tough anti-communist foreign policy, and a social conservatism emphasizing law and order and traditional values. And what he finds is that the target audience of that is not people from his social class, but the working class, the, the grassroots, people who had not been associated with the Republican Party and its elite before. And so that's how you have this dynamic, is that the, the audience for conservatism were the people outside of the institutions, right? And that gives it populist flair beginning in the 1950s. But what you also find, though, is that each wave of populism tends to dislike the populists who came before. So by the time you have a second populist wave in the 1970s, William F. Buckley is considered by them to be too elitist. The new right of that time actually villainized Buckley.
0: Thought that he was he was out there wasn't his unfinished book Revolt Against the Masses? That's, that's right. Yeah, Again, so, so
1: that shows you the kind of the tension because yeah. what he was writing in this book, Revolt Against the Masses, but what he found when he runs for mayor in nineteen sixty five is the masses kind of agree with him. Right. And so it's working out that tension that's one of the real themes of my book. So conservatism really,
0: if you could you could say conservatism is a ideology of elite anti elitism right that the it was led by a conservative intellectual elite but the idea was to trust the people during the post war and cold war era where conservatism came into the mainstream it was against collectivism it was against the the soviet union where we had five year plans planned by the intellectual elites who told of this the collective wisdom of the american people making millions of economic decisions every, every day was better than like the, the wisdom of you know the intellectual elites and liberalism was a was a less totalitarian way of doing that here at home. So it was always an argument for free free enterprise. The free enterprise system is always an argument for
1: populism and for popular wisdom. In a way, uh, you're right. I mean, on, a, on an economic level, the political level is a little bit more complicated. I, I love your phrase, elite anti-elitism, but that phrase only applies when the rest of the elites are liberals, which was not the case at the beginning of my story. So that's one reason I wanted to begin in the 1920s was... Presidents Harding and Coolidge did not think of themselves as conservatives. They represented what they called Americanism, which was the mainstream philosophy of the time. It rejected progressivism as represented by Woodrow Wilson. But they didn't think of themselves as conservatives. They were just Americans. But then the Great How's Depression. How's that different from today? <laughs> then then <laughs> the Great Depression comes along, and then Franklin Roosevelt comes along, and Roosevelt and his New Deal changes the nature of American government. So that now conservatives who are usually the people on the inside defending the institutions, they're on the outside having to change or reclaim them from the liberals who came to power with FDR and really stayed in power. I mean, certainly through the late 1960s and in many ways are still in control of many of our institutions. I mean, today's Washington, all of them, political and cultural.
2: You wrote that the conservatism of Coolidge and Harding was delegitimized by the crises of the 20th century. And and when I read that line, it leapt out at me because it reminded me so forcibly of one of Irving Kristol's most famous lines, which is that a neoconservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. You know, it does seem striking that Republicanism, or at least during the Cold War, Republican conservatism really was not... Not the conservatism of, of Harding and of Coolidge, but the conservatism of people like them who had been smacked by reality. The reality being World War II, the reality being the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the reality being the rise of the Soviet Union. But those are always realities. This is the thing that's so striking is, okay, you had that constant presence of the Soviet Union throughout, from the, you know, from the 40s until the early 90s. And that's a great unifying force and you have that real impact. On Republicans and conservatives who are very anti-Soviet. Once that disappears, you're able to revert back to the Coolidges and the Hardings because you don't have that data sex machina. But we're always going to be smacked. There's going to be a 9/11. There's going to be a you know a, a war in Ukraine. So I'm a little bit confused by the question of whether going back to what once was is ever going to work.
1: I'm also not sure whether going back to one what once was is going to work and i think this is something republicans should be aware of as they uh kind of go retro and they and they think about protectionism they think about non-interventionism or neo-isolationism and they think about restrictionism on immigration the republican presidencies of the 1920s enjoyed tremendous success Then they were shut out of power for a long time, right? Right. You win, and then you're out for forty years. (laughs) Exactly. So, so that's a high price to pay. And there is some signs, I think, uh, with the war in Ukraine that that you mentioned, Danny, that maybe the new right is a little bit worried that oh, the American public did not sign up to cheerlead Vladimir Putin, right? Now, I'm not sure that the conservatives uh, or Republican voters are quite at the point where they want to send American troops overseas to intervene in the war but there's certainly more support for zelensky and the ukrainians than i think a lot of the people on the uh, trumpy right the nationalist right uh, expected when the war in ukraine broke out so it's 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 another potential mugging uh, by reality playing out before us right now
2: but why why is the right the retro right if you want to call it that why is the retro right so uninformed by the realities that are going to come and smack them. This, this is a mystery to me. Why, why is this a surprise?
1: Well, I think it's very easy to be complacent until you get smacked over the head. I mean, that's, that is another lesson of history is that we can really convince ourselves that things will always work out until they really don't. And we're still in a period, it seems like, where the consequences haven't really shown up fully formed on America's shores I would say that to to precisely your point, once the external threat of the Soviet Union was removed, that's when I think we begin to see the divergence between the parts of the conservative grassroots and then parts of the Republican and conservative establishment here in Washington. And uh, you see in 1992 with Pat Buchanan's first presidential campaign, also Ross Perot, a slightly different version of the same issue set. Also running as an independent in 1992, and that recurs throughout that the 30 years since. It really took a figure like Donald Trump to decide that he wasn't going to run as an outsider, but he was actually going to move, you know, from the periphery to the center. He was going to take over the Republican Party, and and thus shape it uh, in in um, in to conform with his views on some of these questions uh, that this process of uh, retrofitting the GOP uh, really begins. And I, I tend to think that the neo-isolationist wing of the
0: Republican Party is a lot louder than it is popular. If you just look at the response to the the twin events that have really put the neo-isolationists on their heels, the disastrous withdrawal from, from Afghanistan and now the war in Ukraine. I mean, there was a poll out the other day that 70% of Americans, including majorities of both Democrats and Republicans wanted to set up a no fly zone in Ukraine. I don't think people thought through what that meant in terms of military intervention, but it's just, there's a, and maybe it's just muscle memory from the cold war, right? You know, the Russians have invaded this, is, this we've been, we've seen this rodeo before, but the, the reflexive response of the American people has been including majority of Republicans and conservatives out there has been very, uh, pro, uh, pro Ukraine. Very angry at the betrayal in Afghanistan. Is this a is this a, uh, a death blow for sort of the neo isolationist right?
1: I did think it's interesting that this uh, the group you discuss uh, held an emergency meeting in Washington the other week, and the emergency wasn't over the invasion of Ukraine. It was over how. The public might reject their foreign policy because of the invasion of Ukraine. Well, Rand
0: Paul was, went off Twitter for the entire <laughs> withdrawal from Afghanistan. I mean, I kept looking for Rand Paul to say something, right. and he just decided, right. I'm going to stay low. I'm just going. I'm, I'm on vacation but, in, in you, know, August. I mean, you know,
1: I mean, the the most important response to all this is Trump's. And I found it very interesting that he's kind of moved from, you know, saying Putin is a— tough shrewd. guy and a strong man shrewd, shrewd right right he's kind of said oh well you know building up the forces on the border that was a shrewd negotiation tactic but i didn't think he'd go through with it and now trump has even moved from that and he's given quotes uh saying zelensky's courageous to saying that you know i told him you know you can't do it you can't take ukraine you know or, i hit moscow if you do it right so now he's decided he's going to kind of move back into being a more assertive the, the more assertive parts of his foreign policy uh, and I think that's because he uh, he recognizes the political peril of being uh, seen as on Putin's side in the midst of this war crime that's taking place in Ukraine.
2: So one of the things that I found interesting and another sort of theme that it's worth pulling the thread on is this division within the conservative you know, movement. I don't think you say it directly, but certainly many have inferred that it really is not... The conservative The conservatives have done well in particular elections, as Republicans, for whatever for whatever reasons, but in large part they've done well because of the failings of the left, because of the overreach of the left, and because the left has, in large part now, become the establishment. In other words, that, other words, that conservatism is kind of a counter-revolutionary movement, but there has to be a revolution for them to actually succeed. Is that is that right?
1: I do think that uh, the Republicans have benefited the most when the Democrats overreach and when the Democrats go to the extremes and are also um, identified in the eyes of the public with the most extreme elements of their coalition. And so um, the periods of you know the late 1960s uh, and the rise of Richard Nixon was a time when the Democratic Party was in internal disarray because of the anti-war movement, because of the student revolt, because of the black power movement, um, and more radical feminist expressions taking place. That kind of tore the party apart, and the public reacted against that extreme by putting in Richard Nixon, right, and then reelecting him in 1972. The same way in the late 1970s, you know, if you look Carter. at Carter, on paper, it was kind of a, you know, evangelical Christian small C conservative Democrat, but that's not the way he governed. He ended up alienating the, the religious right and, and basically forcing them into the Republican camp. And then on stagflation, the public just soured very quickly, understandably on that. And you had the sense that Soviet power was rising with the invasion of Afghanistan, the Sandinistas in Central America, Angola in Africa, and on top of all of this, you have the Iranian revolution and the hostages there, a sense that liberalism and power uh, was leading to uh, social and cultural and economic calamity, right? So you go and you have the Reagan revolution. So you see this kind of periodically where the Democrats overreach and the response is to put Republicans into power. Two things. First is, do the Republicans actually have an agenda that successfully addresses the awful conditions which put them in power in the first place. And that is a mixed bag. I think if you look at the 1980s and in the 1990s, cases where the Republicans really did have an agenda that addressed the problems in society that had led to the Republican victories. Recently, and perhaps not coincidentally, as the party has become more populist, I don't think they've had an agenda um, that they're able to um, put into place. Now, they've been constrained during the Obama years, but even with Trump, if you think about it, during the two years where the Republicans had the full control of the Congress, their most successful initiative was a tax reform, a good tax reform, but that was it. Right? Um, there were a whole lot of other things uh, that needed to be done uh, that weren't accomplished. But secondly, every party can fall victim to its own extremes. Every party can overreach. And I think that the Republican Party is no exception to that, and that the danger is if The public comes to see the Republican Party is out of the mainstream. The Republican Party being captured by its most fringe elements. And I think we saw the risk of that happening in the past two election cycles. I think it's a a danger for the Republican Party today. Even as the public is drawn once again to the Republicans because of liberal overreach, because liberalism in power is leading to awful results for everyday Americans, from inflation, to education, to safe cities, to deteriorating global security picture. If that, that family that, you know, doesn't pay much attention to politics, but just wants to send their kids to a good school afford their grocery bill <laughs> and walk on safe streets, looks up and all uh, thinks of Marjorie Taylor Greene when they think of the Republican Party, they're probably not going to go for the Republican Party. So both parties, uh, I think, can um, fall victim to overreach and extremism. And, and that is one of the themes of my history as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the sort of the anti-interventionist right. You know, it's it's interesting because
0: if you look back in the post-Cold War era, literally every president who's been elected since the end of the Cold War has campaigned on anti-interventionism. George H.W. Bush went into the Persian Gulf War and then, you know, Bill Clinton won on it's the economy, stupid. And then uh, they Clinton went into Kosovo and, and all the rest of it. And did all the nation building in somalia and the rest and george w bush campaigned on a humble foreign policy and then barack obama campaigned after iraq and afghanistan on uh, you know nation building here at home and you know trump came in and he basically the, the innovation he had was that he excoriated the nation builders and interventionists on both the right and the left he attacked bush as well as clinton and obama and everyone else but the, his main critique was not Foreign intervention is bad, though he did he did say that Iraq and Afghanistan were mistakes, but that we never win anymore. We're we're, we're sick of losing, and I think that's where he really tapped into the American public because we're, we're Americans aren't anti-interventionists; they're reluctant internationalists. They want to know that we have a big, you know, there's a big stake involved for us, and we and and when we go in, we want to win, and we weren't winning both the conservative and the liberal, you know, internationalists. And Trump said you know, we want to start winning again.
1: When I study history, I see the American public being very receptive to responding to kind of affronts to their dignity or th- uh, th- attacks on the homeland, right? So my story begins right in the aftermath of World War One. There's another president who ran for re-election, Woodrow Wilson, saying he kept us out of war, and then in his second term, we get into the war, um, partly because of the uh, attacks on merchant— shipping, uh, you know, by the by German submarines. Same thing with World War Two, when uh, FDR goes for a third term, we haven't entered the war yet, there's a suspicion that we probably would. And so it'd be helpful to have FDR still in power during that. Um, And then the attack happens. And there's no discussion, as we mentioned earlier, even America first folds up basically overnight after Pearl Harbor. W, like you say, uh, kind of uh, a humble foreign policy. And then 9-11 happens, right? And um, then it's the freedom agenda. So I think, so I, I think Americans respond when they're hit. Um, and I think if they see uh, the little guy being picked on, they also want to help the little guy if the little guy is uh, on the side of liberty and freedom. The Trump's foreign policy is it, very complicated, and I agree it begins with this idea of strength and of winning. One novelty, One novelty though, that Trump uh, represented was an attack on the alliance system, which in itself is recalling The earlier right that I talk about, right? It's not the Arthur Vandenberg right. It's the right of Bob Taft, who was the opponent of American entry into NATO. And here we have Trump on the campaign and even as president, um, you know, leaving that Article 5 uh, uh, up in the air, threatening sometimes, oh, what's our future with NATO Um, when he's not just kind of bullying the NATO allies to pay up more, which he was successful at doing, right? Um, So that was that was new. But Trump's foreign policy I think was a return to an older form of uh, conservative foreign policy in that it was definitely based on kind of tit for tat and it was um, the policy of like the um, you know retaliatory strike right and it was did not involve what um, had become associated with conservative foreign policy under George W. Bush, which was you know combined arms invasions often based on a preemptive idea that we had to strike before the threat fully emerged, Trump wasn't going to do anything Are we like
0: that. maybe merging back to a more Reaganite foreign policy? We, you know we're now in a period where after the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, there's not an appetite for massive intervention, but we're sort of falling into a Reagan doctrine policy in Ukraine where we're providing arms, we're providing training, we're providing intelligence to people who want to fight their own wars of liberation against the, the Russian bear. It's very similar to what we did in, in Nicaragua, what we did in Angola, what we did in Afghanistan.
1: It was striking to me that uh, Reagan um, really only committed U.S. ground troops twice. Once to Lebanon, which ended in the awful uh, barracks bombing and withdrawal. And then Grenada, which was much more successful. Grenada is much smaller. And, you know, it was a kind of a easier task to um, uh, overthrow the, the, the communist uh, government, which had installed itself there. Otherwise, Reagan's foreign policy uh, was... Um, retaliatory strikes against Gaddafi um, and against the Iranians, basically sank the Iranian Navy in the tanker wars of the late 1980s because of their attacks on shipping. Um, And then it was uh, uh, proxy forces, right? The freedom fighters, the Reagan doctrine, uh, which I discuss at length in the book. And then, of course, there was what I call the psycho-political warfare that Reagan conducted against the Soviet Union from the very beginning, You know, his idea of the cold war, we win, they lose. They're the evil empire. They're destined for the dustbin of history, not capitalism. Just this relentless ideological assault on the underpinnings of communism. That is not present as much as I would like it to be today. That, that confidence in our system, in democracy and all of its benefits, that's the missing element. You didn't see that with Trump. And then, of no, course, oh
2: god, what was his right. inauguration? Carnage, American, American carnage. carnage,
1: right? So, somehow so somehow we need to combine. <laughs> you I know, do think, I do think it's important to actually look at Reagan's foreign policy, which had this vision, an American exceptionalism, and then was wasn't afraid to take bold, you know, moves. Right? I mean, a huge defense buildup. I talk about the Strategic Defense Initiative. You know, this kind of cockamamie idea, which comes out of a lot of uh, conservative think tanks, of space-based missile defense. But Reagan adopted, he had this vision of it, of it working, and thus um, really overthrowing the idea of mutual assured destruction. And the Soviets were spooked by it. <laughs> they knew that their their economy was a shambles. They could not compete with American technology. All of these elements, I think, need to be harnessed. I don't think we're there yet.
2: We're not. And, and, and Mark and I have really sort of taken this in the direction of, of foreign policy, which that's what we love and care about. But one of the things that sticks in my crawl, its funny, you know—I I hadn't thought of Sam Francis in decades. But of course, I worked at a Washington Times-owned magazine, Insight Magazine, in the eighties. Two years after Sam was hired by the Washington Times, I—I didn't—I followed him so little that uh, that I didn't realize he was dead. So uh, I will break that ironclad rule about not saying bad things about dead people. Man, that guy was a creep. But you know, it was the heyday of Pat Buchanan, absolutely you know, loathsome man who denied that the Holocaust had taken place in the way that it had taken place. And this battle, they bothered me because I think of myself as a conservative, and they were besmirching my brand. Right? And I think that's the fight that's going on today, and I can't quite figure out, not just from a foreign policy standpoint, how we harness those brilliant aspects of Reaganism, but how but how conservatives who have values, who love our country, who love civic education, who believe in small government, right, who 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 believe in, in, in winning, but not in winning by dragging other people down, you know, as 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 Trump sort of epitomized, all of those things. How is that fight even happening, that battle over over the brand?
1: I don't think it's happening um, much. And I, I think th- th- one of the dangers of focusing on Reagan is that you begin to think he's the be-all and end-all. And uh, so in my book, what I wanted to do, unlike a lot of histories of the right, was feature Reagan. I mean, there's no way you can ignore him. He's one of the most consequential president of easily the last 50 years, but situate him as one character. And when you do that, you see that the types of the right represented by figures like Patrick Buchanan, who is another big part of my book, um, and like Sam Francis, who I do discuss in my book. They actually are more typical in history than maybe a lot of people within the conservative movement like to think. And so one of the... Lessons of my book, I think, is that the, this type of internal fight does have to take place. And it takes a lot of work. It takes the efforts of a William F. Buckley Jr. to say, this is what conservatism is, right? And set limits for what an American conservative believes, right? And it takes political leaders like a Barry Goldwater or like a Ronald Reagan, even like a Newt Gingrich in the 80s and 90s, to represent a more Optimistic, forward-looking, agenda-driven conservatism. Without those elements, then the American right, I think, can um, easily succumb to the type of negatively charged populism represented by Buchanan. But isn't that the problem? Is we don't have a Buckley today, and you
0: know Buckley, as we talked about, he brought conservatism out of the fever swamps into the mainstream. But as you say, he also set limits, and the reason he was able to do that is because he founded a magazine, National Review, which was where if you wanted to be taken seriously as a conservative intellectual, you had to write for National Review, and if you didn't write for National Review, then you were writing, sending out mimeographs, you know, in in direct mail.
2: I don't think anybody who's listening here remembers what a mimeograph.
0: Is. I mean, for I this, especially for, like Mark's, Mark's gesture. Yes. I was doing hey, it, so he just, was literally cranking. I literally the mimeograph did. I mean, I'd do my, he, my, my print out my homework on it. mimeographs in the, in the school. Like the mimeograph was a machine where you literally had to crank uh, crank it out and and print it out and and put it into an envelope and send it to your list. Today, anybody, you don't need a mimeograph. You can you can get your ideas out anywhere. Uh, the the you know the all you need to do is go on Twitter and get a following and 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 you know and we've got all this proliferation and, and you know of all these different networks and all these different magazines and all these different ways of communicating and podcasts you know and all the all the rest of it and so there's no there's no gatekeeper anymore and and that's both as a double edged sword because it's both good in the sense that uh, you know I remember you know people complain about the the media bias it was uh, what was it accuracy in media uh, you know in the Reagan years who were you know they put out their mimeographs complaining about CBS News and Dan Rather and all the rest of it so there's nobody there's no gatekeeper and that's good because conservatives can can bypass CNN and they but can bypass the networks and get their word out but it's also bad because the uh, it there's no there's no sifting between the the crank right and the real right.
1: I mean, it's a real issue for those of us who want to separate American conservatism from some of the worst elements of the American right. The way I approach it is that even if it's impossible to police everybody because of the nature of communications media in the 21st century, you can still set standards for the institutions you run and make sure that those institutions are molding a certain type of conservative. And there, some of them, I think a lot of, institutions have kind of just decided that, you know, let's go a little bit on the wild side, you know. Um, and then there, it comes down to a contest of political, of political leadership and, um, and candidate quality and, you know, finding political figures who actually do represent um, the type of conservatism you and I might believe in and fi- finding them in ways that they're likable, fluent, and they can also stand up for themselves, right? I mean, I think that's important too.
0: You described the 70s, and it sounded a lot like you were describing today. Joe Biden seems to be in many ways like another Jimmy Carter. A lot of people thought the country was in decline, and the Soviets seemed ascendant. and then one leader was elected, and it's morning in America again a couple of years later. Are we that close to turning this around?
2: I can answer that. No. No. (laughs) What's our
0: hope of having not a Reagan clone, but someone who steps up like Reagan did, and provides that kind of leadership.
1: Well, like we've been saying, it's always when liberals kind of go overboard that uh, the public turns to the right, I think, to clean up the mess. And we're certainly in a situation that uh, there are a lot of messes to clean up. <laughs> it does take a certain amount of policy know-how and also, more, most importantly, will willpower to see the changes through. And that, I think, is, is often... Uh, missing, because it's not just willpower to say that I want something done, right? It's also to stick with it over time and not get distracted. So if you think of Reagan, yeah, morning America, 1984. But uh, it wasn't morning in America in 1981 or 82, or even much of 83. It was Reagan's stay the course. That's what he said, as Paul Volcker was kind of squeezing inflation out of the economy through a very bad recession. Reagan also had the confidence that this policy eventually would work out, right, and so he had the patience to stick with it despite everything um the same idea of firing the air traffic controllers right in uh in the summer of eighty one huge huge move, very controversial uh gets a huge backlash, but it kind of showed there that he demonstrated through this act of will that um you know the unions weren't gonna strangle the American economy. You, they, they were no longer going to be in charge. Um, they were going to be one factor among many. So I think we know a lot of the policy solutions, uh, especially since the, these policies have all appeared before, right? Crime, inflation, kind of uh, a revanchist, aggressive Russia. It's just having the, the strength to, and willpower to, to carry out these decisions and stick with them and not get distracted which I think our previous president got distracted every five minutes.
2: Matt, what you're talking about is a party and a movement that has ideas and has principles and lives by them consistently. Political parties no longer are the carrier of ideas. They are the carriers of plans for vengeance. When we get power, what have we heard from the from the minority leader in the House? When we get power, we're going to investigate Hunter's laptop. You know. I mean, okay, I'd like to know about more about Honor's Laptop. But at the end of the day, it has to be about, you know, we're going to roll back taxes. We're going to roll back inflation. We're going to bring back jobs. We're going to make schools more accountable. We're going to stop, you know, institutions from teaching garbage to your kids. We don't hear that. And, why, can't, it, it, why can't we walk it, and chew
0: gum at the same time? Well,
2: as you know can, all you too can well, can also
0: get to the bottom of Hunter's laptop and, all, and do all those things? As you, you know all too
2: well, Mark, we we have we are increasingly incapable of it, and part of it is because we don't have leaders that can hold a thought consistently for any period of time, because they're you know because they're being led around by the nose by people who are throwing things at them every ten seconds. This is a great book. We've only scratched the surface, but it's a fantastic read. The Right: The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism by one why to buy them for your family and Matt thank
0: you Danny, as you said before we started the interview that you're disconcerted by all these different factions and the, and the debate amongst them it's always been there uh, if you read Matt's book you know there, there was the, there's paleocons there's the neocons there's the fusionists there's there's always been different factions at the right and these these battles have already, always taken place but in the end I think all those battles ended up leading us to Ronald Reagan which was a coalition of lots of different factions and people who, libertarians who disagreed with traditional conservatives, evangelical right that disagreed with the politics is, a, is the art of faction, coalition building. And I think that we can take these fractious coalitions and form them into coherent political movement again.
2: Well, um, from your mouth to God's ears, I'm not entirely sure that, that that's right. I think we rely a lot on our enemy. And this is one of the things that, and I wrote a piece about this for Foreign Policy, probably more than a year ago at this point, about how we do, we tend to rely on these external factors in order to get us into a right place. You know, we've been ignoring the effective dissolution of NATO for years now. We've been ignoring the fact that our military is increasingly weak and not ready for conflict for years now. And so, you know, the first time these words will be uttered, thank goodness Vladimir Putin helped wake us up. Right? But it needed Vladimir Putin to wake us up. The notion that we were incapable as the richest nation in the world, as the most powerful nation in the world, as the longest existing democracy in the world, sorry India, and that we cannot anticipate the rise of the Putins, that we're surprised that Xi Jinping has maligned plans for us, and that we have to react to everything. We, it always takes a Jimmy Carter for us uh, an Iranian revolution a 9-11 uh, a Pearl Harbor and this is really what troubles me especially because I believe in the power of our ideas. But you know what? That's, I mean, that's the
0: history of the world. They haven't I mean, been enough. As uh, events come we, up, and I mean, being it's being surprised. It's, being surprised. I mean, being, you know, we're like, you know, as it's you said,
2: surprised. We surprised on
0: per- by Pearl Harbor, and we were surprised by 9-11. It's you know, the it's we're always the CIA always we're motto. We're yeah, always but I mean, surprised. that's you know, that's 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 just the reality of life. Life life, life is very crystal clear with hindsight. Uh, 2020. Hindsight is 2020 vision, as they say. But you know what? It's good that these uh, that these uh, people keep popping up to remind us. Vladimir Putin has reminded us that evil exists and that civilization hasn't overcome evil and that uh, we're not now on the edge of perpetual peace. Evil still exists in the world. And guess what? When Putin is gone and Xi Jinping is gone, something else is going to come up because evil is real and exists and we have to confront it. And the Democrats have done us a huge favor in reminding Americans what crazy big government looks like. And, you know, Bill Buckley famously said, uh, and this is a key role of the conservative movement, is National Review's purpose was to stand athwart history yelling, stop.
2: That is great. But in each of these instances you have either alluded to or actually mentioned by name the individual who has really been the avatar of this right thinking, no pun intended. You know, so you know, we had Winston Churchill who was warning throughout the nineteen thirties about the the peril that not just Hitler, but that Hitler and Stalin posed. It was Winston Churchill, who realized at the end of World War II when Hitler was finally gone, that in fact Stalin was going to, uh, was going to draw an iron curtain on history. Uh, you know, We can go on and on with all of the great names that are beloved to us, whether it was Margaret Thatcher or it was Ronald Reagan or it was William F. Buckley, but there was always... And, and I am very hard-pressed to tell you today who my living hero is going to be, who that person on the white horse is going to be. Who is it?
0: If you had told me even a year ago that it would be Zelensky, I wouldn't have believed you these leaders emerge in response to crises. And except
2: when they except when they don't. Except when they don't.
0: That's true. Um but you know, we uh, Zelensky has emerged and has captured the the hearts and the minds and the imaginations of the world and I'm we need an American Zelensky.
2: We need a- an, actor. Yeah. An, actor. An, actor. an actor. An actor. A, a comedian. comedian. <laughs> Not just someone who people because laugh at, someone who people laugh with. Absolutely. No, and someone with so moral true. clarity.
0: I mean, look, I'm just a big believer that leadership is critical, that there's no flow of history towards a final destination. Leadership is critical. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan emerged as that leader and 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 turned this country around. We're one great leader away um, from turning this country around again. We just got to find him
2: or her. Amen. Him or her. Thanks, folks, for listening. Go buy the book.